Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced almost five years now, and we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today I have a new guest who I'm very interested to have share her experience with you and some of the amazing work that she's doing. So Renee Rosales is joining me today and welcome Renee. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. Um, To give you a little background on myself, I started in the realm of education. I'm an educator. Um, I'm also neurodivergent, ADHD, And um, I have neurodivergent children and have worked in the realms of alternative education um, pretty much my whole career in the public education system, which is over 20 years, and decided um, two years ago, almost like 18 months ago, 19 months ago, to leave the public school system and launch a business in support of the Neurodiverse Collective and really the the courses I've developed and the coaching that I do is much the same as the work you're doing. It's all around um, connection and belonging and helping one another as much as we can, both the neurodistinct and neurotypical, reach their highest self in relationship to others. Mm. And so that's really kind of my journey. And I got there Really, it was my journey as a mother that took me into that space because I don't think, as a mother, I don't think there's a relationship in which we're really more vulnerable than in that space. Yeah, yeah, I I so agree with you. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit about what brought you to where you are in your life right now because it's always, um, I think, really exciting for the listeners to hear from folks who may have a similar story to them. And I do know that a lot of folks who listen to the podcast have found out that they're neurodiverse or neurodivergent or their partner is or another family member is because their child was assessed, evaluated or diagnosed. And when they read the, you know, assessment or evaluation, they're like, oh, my gosh, that's me. Or, oh, my gosh, that's my partner, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So so tell me. Tell me a little bit about what you realized maybe was happening in your life, in your family, that made you realize that there was neurodiversity, not only with your children, but with you too. Can you share a little Um, bit about that? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a perfect lead in um, to my story and my journey. So uh, quite honestly, um, my diagnosis, my official diagnosis came in my marriage counseling, which that mm. before, pre my premarital counseling, um, I grew up, my uh, grandfather is a psychologist and had a counseling center. And I went through all kinds of testing as a kiddo as a result of that. Um, but they weren't really looking for ADHD. And then they especially weren't looking for ADHD in little girls. Yep. And um, they also weren't, weren't looking for it if the child um, was high functioning already. And, you know, I fell into the gifted um, segment. And so that made me neurodiverse, but we don't all all the time think 
of neurodiversity in terms of giftedness, because we were like, kind of like those kids have got it right. They, right, right. They're going to be okay. And right. so they really, I don't think the comorbid aspect of it, you know, my, my, and I don't like to use the word co comorbid. I think so many words in association with neurodiversity have a negative connotation to them. And I was an English teacher before I was a school administrator. And so words really matter to me. And the way we label really matters to me. And we need the labels to help us yeah. because they they provide us um, the the appropriate accommodations they need. They're oftentimes our keys to entry to getting the support and help we need. Right. Um, but I like to call it, you know, hybrid neurodiversity types. And uh, so I was in counseling, um, in the counseling with a counselor who married us that was actually a really good family friend. And after doing some diagnostics with my husband and I, my husband, he didn't know at all um, at, at the time, it would, except in terms of the premarital counseling. He said, Renee, I don't know if anyone's talked to you about this, but it's very clear to me that you're ADHD. And um, to be honest with you, I was pretty dismissive of the diagnosis because mm. they'd have had such a negative stigma sure. um, in my mind growing up. And so, and I thought, well, I've gotten by, you know, I've, it's not affected my career. And, and I really had no awareness of how much it was impacting my everyday life and my marriage mm. um, until my son was born. So, you know, we've had, I have five children. I consider my children. I have stepchildren. I have children that have been in my home um, as guardians and I have two biological sons. And my uh, second son was everything. Well, it was a little off when he was born. Um, he came out, it was a traumatic birth. He, he mm. came out almost singing, which was really strange. And, and I've also learned uh, he, he didn't pass the hearing test, but even while he was in the womb, there was, he was always like, almost like a fluttering I was feeling. He was kicking. And I've even heard that that can be a sign of um, traits of autism um, while children are in utero. And uh, I think he may be on the spectrum as well, but that's not his, his um, primary diagnosis. Okay. Uh, we, he was very quiet. Um, his first year, we used to call him quiet Wyatt. He didn't cry. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> my older boy was like, he had colic. He was crying all the time. He wanted to be moving. Um, and he's ADHD. So, uh, but I just kind of was dismissive of those traits, even in him. Um, Wyatt presented at the age of around one and a half with some, what I would call concerning behaviors. They would be concerning at least to most mothers, I think. Um, he, he was going into that fight, flight or freeze mode um, mm -hmm. at around that stage where he was always hiding. He liked small, dark places. Um, if he was not in a a strapped into a cart or a stroller, he was gone. Like he was my little escape artist. And I was the crazy mom in the store that was yelling code at him, you know, for my wow. kid. And, and scary. Yeah. yeah, it was very frightening. I mean, at one point he even hid in my, in my dryer, uh, like, and I couldn't yeah. find him. He had crawled out, he hid in the dryer and he almost closed the door. Um, and he, I was, 
looking for him frantically all over the house, calling his name. And I heard this thud inside metal and went in and found him inside there. And he was just looking at me with this big grin on his face. And so I'm like, what, you know, those are the, they were odd behaviors, you know, and we were, he was always putting everything in his mouth. And so by the time he was approaching to, we had absolutely no words. And when I would try to get him to mimic me and say mama or Baba for bottle, there was nothing. He would just, it was like a blank stare. Um, And my husband was, you know, in my ear in the background, he's young, he's a boy, he'll be late to talk. It's okay. Everything's fine. You know, Mm. very dismissive of what was going on. And when I went to the pediatrician, she was almost dismissive of it at first. And I said, no, no, you know, there's something happening because he's obviously understanding the things I am telling him, you know, he could follow two step directions. Um, and we, I, I reached out to, um, the Arizona, uh, state program, uh, has a, has an evaluation process that you can go through at the age of three. Um, and so, before then, before as the three, as his third birthday was approaching, we had him evaluated. Um, and immediately uh, they said, you know, I think we may be dealing with childhood apraxia of speech. Okay. And <laughs> I, I don't know how much you're aware of that. Are you, do you know anything about childhood apraxia of speech, Mona? Only a very little bit. And what what I'm hearing you say is you went, I want to hear the whole story. What I'm hearing you say is you went to the experts, the people Mm -hmm. who should have been able to help you find out exactly what was going on with your child. And they focused on one piece of the total picture of what was going on. Okay. But yeah, feel free to to talk (laughs) more about that. I'll, I'll expand on it because I, to practitioners who are listening and to people out there, and I actually go annually and, and to our local university, Northern Arizona University, and I um, meet with the graduate, uh, the incoming um, graduate students, and I'm, they do a parent interview with me every year. And mm. the reason that I'm asked to do that is because a big part of the reason is because so many people, you know, get the approach wrong with, with families um, initially when they're sharing, because childhood apraxia of speech is a, is a pretty profound, difficult diagnosis. Um, And I'm a researcher and the person that did the evaluation doesn't, didn't know me at all, you know? So to throw that out there to me right away um, as an explanation of the behavior it was very, it was very difficult for me. And I think that something that we don't talk about in association that I'm trying to talk about more and more and build awareness around is the grief and trauma associated with neurodiversity in general. And it's not just the neurodiverse that experiences those, it's all the people that love them that experience those things. And so I, immediately actually got on the, the phone after the meeting. Cause I, I went first, I went to the internet I'm looking at what childhood apraxia of speech is. And I'm hearing that these people may never talk that they may right. never be able to say, I love you that my right. son may never be able to say mom. And right. 
I'm devastated. So I called my neighbor down the street who happens to be um, a professor and was at one point the department chair in the speech and hearing clinic at NAU. And I, I was in tears and I'm like, what is this? You know, what do I need to do? And she's like, come to NAU. We have a specialist in childhood apraxia of speech and we're going to get him evaluated right away through our system. And we have ways to help. And so the, there was like a relief. She came to my house. She brought chocolates. I was like, okay, oh. like I, we're gonna, <laughs> there's a way through this, you know? Right. And um, I think that reach too is super important because a lot of us kind of, we get a diagnosis like that and we're afraid to reach out to other people because there's shame associated with it. You're asking questions like maybe it's something I did. Maybe I ate the right. wrong thing while I was pregnant. Maybe I did the wrong exercise too much. I mean, you're automatically doing that self-blame because um, sure. you want to fix it and make it better. So right. um, that was the first step on the journey. And um, so fast forward, my husband um, didn't really wake up to the reality of what was going on with Wyatt um, until I had to leave on a weekend. We'd had a really bad vacation experience where we had taken him on the plane right around the same time that we were discovering these things and he couldn't tolerate the flight at all. He screamed the whole flight. Like, you know, if I could have hid inside the overhead compartment with and given everybody yeah. earmuffs, I would have. Like he literally screamed and so I went home to visit family and left him with my husband and he was close to his, you know, he was getting closer to his fourth birthday. Um, okay. Still didn't have very many words. It was the beginning of the summer, I think, uh, and he was three and my husband ran into a friend when they were out at a store and he had a son the exact same age and that little boy was just talking a mile a minute. Mm -hmm. And why it was not engaged at all. And mm -hmm. it was a big like wake up for my husband. And it was also a wake up for us because I think it was around that time that my husband started to come to terms with his own issues. He'd always struggled with spelling. He'd always struggled with the ability to read quickly. Studying was hard for him. And he's a physician. He just, mm. he made up in grit and tenacity, everything <laughs> that, that he lacked yes. maybe in raw ability, which is a neurodivergent yeah. trait, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> yes. Amen. To One that. of the yes. wonderful parts of it. And he ended up kind of disclosing to me that he thought he was probably um, undiagnosed dyslexic or, and, you know, came out kind of, he emerged saying, yeah. you know, I am, I think I'm, I'm diagnosing myself dyslexic. It's not severe. I made it, but it was not easy for me. And so that's when we first kind of started to unravel our mixed neurodiversity relationship at, as a couple and just began to understand what that meant in our relationship and it's ever evolving um mm -hmm. how and, long had you been married at that point um we had been married well we got married in 2005 so this would have been like 2000 and 
13. So, okay. you know, seven, eight years we were um, in on that. And it really wasn't a full wake up. This was just kind of the beginning. It was like, right. okay, you know, the teaser. Uh, and the full wake up didn't come till we um, received Wyatt's diagnosis as dyslexic. He also had serious vision impairment issues. He qualified for VI up until the age of um, 10 when we got him into contacts. Uh, what is VI in your state? What is that? It's visual impairment. So we qualified for visual okay. impairment services, although okay. we had a real difficult time. Um, he never really actually received those because we were still uncovering it's like peeling back an onion the different layers and he has a very complex neurodiverse profile so we were dealing with the cast and because he couldn't talk he he was not able to really take the vision test sure, the way that sure. he should have sure. and then they had a machine that they tested him um on and they said he's got some problems with his vision um, we rolled out problems with his hearing through hearing testing, which, I mean, the two most important tests you take um, in terms of acquiring the, the IEP services for kiddos. They need a vision and hearing test first. got to roll things out. And they put him in the wrong set of glasses because they don't oftentimes dilate kids' eyes when they're really little. Mm. And Wyatt is extremely farsighted. So... It took us two years and five pairs of the wrong glasses um, oh. before we got him in the right set of eyes. Um, and then he could have qualified, but we moved him to contacts pretty quickly. And I didn't know that he could have qualified for visual impairment services because that's not information a school district usually throws out to you. You know, they, they see a kid with glasses and they think they're okay. Right. Um, and he had glasses and he wasn't okay. <laughs> and so yeah. Yeah. Um, that then we got the diagnosis after we finally got the right set of eyes on that why it was also dyslexic. And he's part of the 2% of dyslexics that may never comfortably eye read. Most children with dyslexia provided a structured literacy program will be able to learn to become successful readers and why it is it we at this point in time we treat him as though he is blind um in terms of assistive technology and he's an a b student and does really well um mm. with those accommodations but along that journey um my husband and i really woke up to the neurodiversity and how <laughs> it it wasn't ex existing in our relationship how it was existing in your relationship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so first of all, I want to, I know your story is going to be so helpful to so many of the listeners because I really haven't had anybody come on the podcast to talk about the journey and, you know, we're only talking for an hour or so. So you said a lot in a short amount of time. I haven't really had anybody talk about the journey that they've gone through with their children mm -hmm. because, you know, oftentimes if, if one adult or one parent is neurodivergent, then, you know, there's a good chance that at least one of the children are going to be neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. So I just want to, first, I want to say, I am so sorry that you and your family and your son went through kind of a roller coaster ride mm -hmm. 
of mm. more downs than you know ups searching for what was going on and then finding you know the right glasses the right resources the right accommodations so that he could thrive in his life and my heart goes out to you I just can't even imagine what hell you went through I, I really can't I can't I, I, I don't know that I would have survived it to be honest with you but you know as a parent you're going to do everything you can for your child but I just I probably would have had a nervous breakdown Renee Seriously. <laughs> just listening to you I'm I'm you know my heart goes out to you I want to cry for both of and you for all of you yeah. you know I, I I think I told you this before in a conversation outside of the podcast, but um, I I'm not sorry because I was able to turn. It was very painful. It was a very difficult journey, but I am was able to turn my trouble into training and yes. um, my the obstacles into opportunities for other families. And I yes. truly believe that that I was given Wyatt so that that we were given Wyatt so that I could do that. It wouldn't have, have happened any other way. And I have learned so much from him and the result in our, my every aspect of my life has profoundly benefited from the struggle. Um, and I totally understand. I totally yeah. understand, Renee. I totally understand. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and and you know, my relationship with my husband, I think, is probably that was the most challenging because you know we both were recognizing our own neurodiversity. We, we were becoming more and more aware of it and how it was impacting our relationship. And then it was opening up in our child, and he wasn't. I mean, my other son is ADHD, and you know, I had always managed my ADHD naturally. Um, and I inherently kind of provided Anthony with those skills as well, but I didn't realize how much until we were going through this journey, how much it was impacting our interpersonal skills, our, our ability to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I, first, I knew that was happening with Wyatt. I mean, he didn't have words and I, I'm the word lady, you know, I, I built <laughs> my whole system that at Tiara around acronyms. And so words are my thing. And that was devastating to me. But I also learned that there is not just one, you don't just connect with words. We, we connect in so many other ways. And I, I think the most profound thing that came out of it was the value and the tremendous um, gift of curiosity. I think that's one of the things like that was the highest compliment that that Wyatt has ever given me because I, I asked him one day, you know, what what do you appreciate about me? What do you value in our relationship? And he actually said, Mom, you are more curious about me than anyone else. You mm. want to know everything you can about me. And and I took I mean, this was years ago that probably happened around. Uh, five years ago that he, he gave me that compliment. And I, I held on to that and I transferred that into my relationship with my husband. And I made it a point that we engage with one another in a curious way because curiosity questions demonstrates your value for the other person. 
you know, a lot of times we go yes. through life and we get in our corner and we, and we, you know, have the, the standoff with one another and in terms of the marriage relationship or a love relationship. And we, and we don't realize, or we, or we want to help and we just give answers rather than ask questions. Yeah. Yes. And it's really helped me a lot to change my approach to really having vulnerable engagement with everyone that I love. Um, but primarily with my children and, and my husband or my partner. I love everything you just said. And I'm so thankful that you shared how all of the struggles and the ups and downs have created a life that is filled with so many things that are changing you and your family, but helping to change the world. And I, I think there are a few things that you touched on that I would like to go back to because I think that the listeners are going to want a little bit more information before we move on to the amazing work that you're doing because I think that so many people are going to be helped by learning more about that. But can you talk about where your son Wyatt is right now? Is he able to communicate with words <laughs> and how is he doing in life and maybe even how old he is. I think folks would want to know. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's 13 right now. Okay. Um, he is the typical teenager. I think he's pretty well adjusted, um, but we are dealing with hormones and adolescence <laughs> and all of that stuff. So that, and he is more intense and uh, because of his neurodiversity. So uh, that's, and interesting, we're, we're in a, we shifted into like a whole new dynamic in the last year, really. Um, but it's been an amazing journey. He is full of words. He went from being at, at the age, right at the end of the summer, um, he turned four in October and we had a huge um, burst of language. He mm. had been, by that time, he'd been in intensive therapy five days a week. Um, three of those days were one-on-one, -on -one. two of them were in group sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, because with, with childhood apraxia of speech, that's one of the most important things is that your child received that intensive, um, frequent therapy. And I, at the same time, um, and this is huge piece, uh, for all parents out there, the immediate thing we did to help with behaviors, like, so he wasn't running away from me in the store all the time, um, was incorporating a sensory diet. And mm. when I first heard that, I thought oh, I'm supposed to change all the things he eats. Okay. No red dye. I mean, you know, that's all going through my head and they're like, no, no, no. It, it's get him a vibrating toothbrush, put a mini trampoline in his room, um, have a jungle gym for him in the back. Um, do, it, it was providing him the sensory input that he needed to feel satiated and have a sense of calm to be able to move forward productively in his day. And for Wyatt, you're usually either a sensory avoider or sensory sensitive, or you're a sensory seeker. You can be a combination of both. He was definitely a sensory seeker. Yeah. And so uh, when, and he responded really well to weighted therapy um, and like where he, he did it himself. And that was also really a beautiful thing for me to understand because 
he was he was naturally self-soothing and doing these things and i i thought that was it in creative ways like he always wore equipment i used to call it he he probably had 40 different cuz i would go to like savers or the discount store and get all the halloween costumes whenever they were yeah. <laughs> on sale and yeah. he probably had 40 costumes and he just wore a costume with like all of his equipment wrapped around him every day I love and it. it was cool to me to see what he was doing naturally for himself to meet his own needs. Um, one of the first things I did, and this is like maybe a key for moms because I didn't have the money at the time for like a weighted vest and all these things. I was just trying to survive my days. I went to the back of the grocery aisle um, or the grocery store to the dairy section and got two jugs of milk and set them on his lap in the grocery. That was the first thing I did in the grocery store. And it automatically calmed him and got him through the store without trying to get out of the car, without grabbing stuff from shelves. And that was huge for me. Wow. So getting those behaviors under control was a big deal because it was exhausting, you know, having this child that you couldn't contain and not having the skills to contain them or the knowledge that I needed. And so we got through that for the words came, there was still significant speech impairment issues. Um, those are still blatantly there. Um, he's, he can carry on, uh, he has an incredible vo vocabulary. His comprehension is, is through the roof. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but he, struggles still with some multisyllabic words. He still has issues with his vocalic R, um, but he's confident. And mm. we, I do check-ins with him like every few months, I would say about his speech because, you know, he is a middle school kid and yeah. um, it does this bother you? Do you, what, do we want to go back into more intensive speech services do we do you because he's at a private school so all of those things are kind of add-ons for us yeah. <laughs> and he and I don't want to exhaust him with therapies because there are so many different arenas that we're dealing with um sure. so he's fine with uh his speech at this point in time and he can get it if he really focuses but um I do notice that one of the things he still struggles with is the words do not come as quickly. Okay. And so he's, he's well-adjusted doing great, much more temperamental than my other <laughs> children. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. But you know, what's so wonderful is your story is going to give so many people hope and knowledge and I'm sure they're going to want to reach out to you so for those that are listening I'll you know Renee will give you her contact information at yes. the end and it'll go in the show notes but I think what you're talking about could all the things that you went through could weigh heavily on any solid healthy romantic relationship I mean just yes. You know, yes. it could destroy a couple, it could destroy, you know, both individual parents, but it sounds like on your journey with your son or your sons or your family, you and your husband took different paths to learning and educating yourselves. And then there were some epiphanies that started happening, which you've already talked about. And then the maybe epiphanies or increased understanding continued for a while. 
So let's talk a little bit about my maybe some shifts in your relationship with your husband that happened that helped you both determine, okay, this is the relationship that I want to be in. I'm looking, you know, through a very curious lens to find out how I can be my best self and the best partner I can be. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of those things that happened? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Um, So during this time, it was actually between we, you know, because Wyatt, we were discovering things. He didn't start because of the October birthday. He didn't start school till he was almost six. Um, Sorry. I lost my earbud for a second. Um, That's okay. He didn't start school until he was almost six years old. We were uncovering these things. I was doing the majority of the work. And meaning I'm taking him back and forth to therapy. I was also managing an online, I was the administrator of an online school. So I'm working, my husband's working full time. We have our own business together doing real estate. So, you know, we were just kind of in the motions doing the the things we're supposed to do. And when the trauma and the grief hit in terms of our awareness and understanding of the brevity of why it's challenges. Um, we, we did not, and, and we could not see the value of his strengths at that time. We're just being inundated because so often the neurodivergent community is led according to their lack mm-hmm. rather yeah. than strengths first. And so you're just attending meetings, you're in this exhaustive therapy and it's just negative, you know, it, it right. weighs on you. And there are not a lot of support groups if you're in a small town, which Flagstaff is a fairly small town. Um, I, I, and when I was asking questions, the questions I was asking were coming from the perspective of a school administrator and an educator with, with 15, you know, at the time, 10, 15 years experience. And right. I should have known all the right people to go to where to find the help. And I didn't. So we ended up, kind of reaching a climactic point with one another and actually separated. Um, and, and I think it was because I was doing all the work. I didn't feel, and, and, and in large part because my husband was in a state of denial about Mm -hmm. what was going on. Now we woke up to like, okay, we're a neurodiverse couple, but there there was no one around providing services to neurodiverse couples. (laughs) And, and, and I, and we, and we weren't even, we weren't even thinking about, oh, we should share this in a counseling session, you know? And so we went to counseling for about uh, six months and the counseling was, and like we hit a roadblock and it was just Mm -hmm. like my husband kind of shut down. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, he shut down. And it was in May that he stopped attending and in August I left. And and what year was that? What year was that? That was eight years ago. So where are we at now? So it was like right, no, it was it was 2015. Okay. And um at the time, you know, Wyatt was just, you know, finishing kindergarten, like he was in kindergarten. Anthony is a little older, I think it was third grade or something for him. And you know, then you throw intense trauma on top of trauma, right? Because 
yep. the parents are separated and like we still have this child with these big issues and um i and and my other son was presenting issues because he literally couldn't contain all the emotions so that sure. started coming out and really profound ways. Um, not so much at school that it was happening more at home. Wyatt's mm -hmm. issues were bigger at school. And okay. I don't, my husband was not expecting it. He was mm -hmm. in denial about where our marriage was, um, mm -hmm. and the lack of communication that was going on. And so it was like a total, like, like he got hit with a Mack truck when I when I left, you know, he was not, he wasn't, there was no, he's thinking everything is fine and it was not right. fine. Right. And, um, so that, how long were you, how long were you separated Renee? We were separated from, um, August to February. Okay. And so it was a pretty, you know, brief period of time, but it was enough time for him to determine that he needed to do some introspection, do some inner work and um, just recalibrate because he did not want to, his family was the most important thing to him. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't being communicated to us. Do you know, like sure. that wasn't coming through. He thought sure. he was doing fine going to work and, and providing and doing things like, and, and the relationships weren't, we weren't connected. We were sure. not connected. So he, it started after month, six weeks into the separation, he committed to, to literally daily counseling sessions. Mm. And we started unpacking. Um, he did that by himself. And then I think it was probably um, early November, late October that I agreed to join the sessions and we were meeting at that time bi-weekly. And that was truly when, and, and at the same time, I'm listening to every podcast I could possibly listen to on dyslexia, <laughs> on relationships, on everything. Like I'm literally like, I'm a researcher, right? So I'm, right. I'm digging in, I'm reading all these books and I'm an avid reader. So I, I was trying to find the answers. Like, how do we do this? How do we sure. get back? Cause we deeply loved each other, you know? Right. And I knew that. Um, and one of the most valuable, and honestly, I don't remember who it was. And it's awful that I don't remember who it was, but it was a couple on, and he was dyslexic and she was more neurotypical and they were talking and he, and they talk about dyslexia as a processing disorder. Mm -hmm. And the fact that literally they described it as, as he's got a dial up connection and I have the broadband <laughs> access. I love it. I love and it. And that made so much sense to me. You know, I was like, oh my gosh. And we started unpacking that, not even talking about neurodiversity with our counselor. We didn't even address the neurodiversity piece. We just started talking about that. And so I literally spent the next, like, I, I've literally spent, I'm still doing it now. So the next eight years focusing on bringing fewer words to the table when we're talking, especially about difficult things. Mm -hmm. And he focuses on bringing more. And that has so profoundly impacted our relationship. It, he, I mean, and he even described me 
as, and I had no idea. He's like, I feel like it's a machine gun coming at me. Like she's oh got so God. many words. <laughs> and I, and I had no idea. Yeah. And, it, and it made me reflect way back to our merit, our premarital counseling when I was identified with ADHD. And he said in the premarital counseling, I feel like Renee is like on this super fast train and I'm just trying to hop on it most of the time. And, wow. and wow. <laughs> yeah, it was like this huge revelation for, okay. for us. Let me, let me just stop you there because this is an issue I hear about over and over and over again. First of mm -hmm. all, couples have stopped being curious about each other because there's so much unintentional hurt and pain. Yes. And trauma, right. Yes. And yes. so even though you loved each other, and I say this over and over again on the podcast, I never stopped loving my ex-husband. We right. had been married, you know, when we found out we were a neurodiverse couple, we'd been married 29 years mm -hmm. and been together over 30. So, um, and still to this day, I care deeply about him, mm -hmm. but we had caused each other so much unintentional hurt. And yes. I think there's a few things that I want to kind of bring to the surface that you said that I think are critical and folks are probably hearing and going, I want this, I want this. Your husband had this moment where he realized how important his family was and that he needed to do his individual work. And then when he was doing his individual work with the therapist, then you started going together for couples counseling. I think that is so critical. Whether you yes. go for counseling or you see a coach or you do your own work, I think if both individuals are not willing to do their work and delve into the things that they need to work on themselves and then what they need to work on so they can be the best partner or parent and partner, whatever. I think that's critical. And I think a 100%. lot of, yeah. And I think a lot of couples struggle with that mm -hmm. after not knowing they are a neurodiverse couple for so many years. So that's yes. the first thing I want to acknowledge. So, you know, kudos to both you and your husband for doing your own work, but then doing your work together as a couple. And then I think the other thing that I think is really important is that it sounds like no matter what you were looking, both looking at ways that you could respect each other rebuild trust and find different and better ways of communicating and engaging. And one of them that I heard, which really resonates with me, is that you would say less and he would say more when you yes. were when you were in conversation. And I have lots of ADHD traits. I didn't fully realize it until after we separated. And I think um, couples where one partner is ADHD, whether it's, you know, just self-identified or actual diagnosis, it doesn't matter. In my opinion, it's looking at the traits. But right. when one, one person is ADHD and the other person is autistic or autistic ADHD, I think the challenges that can occur can be dealt with, with some, you know, new tools, new routines, new ways of connecting with each other if both partners are curious. Yes. What yes. are your thoughts? Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. That's, I mean, I, I can't agree with you more. And that's really, it was that journey, my journey toward my son, my, my reaching for him and my reaching and journey toward my husband that that's where the acronym based system that I developed at the R came out of, but I started developing those acronyms prior. And, and the first acronym that I developed, and I'm sharing these because they're such easy tools to use because you can easily remember them. And it was just how I tried to repattern my thoughts because, you know, when you're in it with your spouse or your partner and you're, you're arguing or you're what, and facing a challenge, we tend to be reactive and right. versus be proactive. And, right. and so part of that was training my brain not to take, not to take what was going on personally and think about it in terms of, okay, what's the most effective way forward? How do, how do we move mo most effectively forward in this relationship? And the first acronym I started using was joy. And that was, I, I made up this acronym journey forward, organize for optimism, yield to wellness. And I applied one of them at whenever I was feeling overwhelmed or frustrated, consumed by grief, you know, okay, I've got a journey forward. What does that mean right now? Okay. Instead of sitting angry in my corner, I'm going to think maybe about what I can do to positively engage or what part, what can I change in myself? I mean, mm -hmm. I, we have to own it. One of the most, Bert Gershiter is an amazing, amazing counselor. He was our counselor and stuff. He's also does coaching and um, he's still our counselor, I should say. What's his, what's his name? Can you his spell name is name? Bert Gershiter. So B-U-R-T and then it's G-E-R-S-H-A-T-E-R. Okay. And um he was describing to us basically a session that he had with his own wife. And he said they were dealing with some difficult stuff. And the counselor looked at them because his wife had said, or he had said, I'm not sure which at this point in time, you know, what's his crap and what's, what's my crap so we can just get through this, you know, and didn't <laughs> use that same word, but right, I'm right, trying right. to keep it kosher. And, um, and the counselor looked back, pointed a finger at each one of them and said, it's all your crap. Mm -hmm. And the next acronym that I took on was my own it. Like only you can change you. That's the O wake up now. Like I can only change myself. Right. So I can't change my, my husband. I can't, you can't change your partner. You can't necessarily change your child. We can have influence on their behavior, but right. we don't have the ability to control or change them. So how can I approach, change my approach, change my response, change my reaction to move forward more positively? And, and we have really focused to try to do that. Is it perfect? No. Do we get triggered? Yes. Like almost daily, like stuff happens all the time. But right. when you move through it with this, this attitude of how can I be most effective in this space, whatever the space is, as particularly in our love relationships, I think it's, it's a huge game changer. It, it yes. was, it was for us. It, it yeah. is for me every day. Okay. I, I, again, I love what you're sharing and I want, I want to share one personal thing. And then I want you to explain to folks why you created this acronym based system. But 
I did not know how to talk to him when I didn't know how to talk to him. And I just, I want to explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. When, when I could be patient and when I could slow down and when I could use fewer words or fewer emotions or even put something in text or in an email, I got a very different response. Yes. Right. Then when I flooded him with 86 different issues or I flooded him with crying and screaming and lots of emotions or I flooded him with I need a decision now you've had a week to think about this I want to know what we're what we're doing moving forward right you know a perfect example was when we um, decided to get married he said that we needed to wait five years before we had a child. And I'm like, okay, we both agreed to that. Well, five years came around and he still wasn't making a decision. Now I did not want to make that decision on my own. And Renee, the interesting thing is we didn't have our daughter for nine years. And every year I was asking him, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Now imagine the stress that I was causing him, his body, his brain, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. So I say this, I'm always disclosing so much on the podcast because I want couples and individuals to know that you don't know what you don't know. And once you understand you're a neurodiverse couple, even if you're no longer in the relationship, because, you know, I've been divorced almost five years, but all that I've learned has, I've taken it into every relationship that I've had since. And right. pretty much every man that I've been with since my divorce is autistic. So <laughs> clearly I have a lot that I can practice and it's been great. I'm a very different partner and a very different communicator now than I was before. But I think that's really important for the listeners to know, you know, communication differences are so magnified in a neurodiverse relationship. And instead of getting angry and resentful and bitter and judgmental, be curious as hard as it can be. Right. Be curious. Well, and it is hard. And and I think it's, it's gotta be coupled with that personal accountability too, because I mean, you know, if the other person is not willing to receive you and you're trying and you're moving forward in that way, then at some point you have to say, okay, this is a futile effort here. You know, we're not able to do this. And, and I mean, that's still a possibility in my own marriage. You know, it's, it's the whole thing is you have to both be invested in that, kind of reach for positive engagement all the time. It can, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's a marathon, not a race. You know, you're, yeah. you're doing it every day and, and let's face it, the, the growth part of things is not easy. It's no. painful. You know, it's very, <laughs> that is a very difficult process and maintaining that positive perspective. And I think that's why the joy acronym was so big for me it, it's really hard, you know, because it's easy for us to go into the why me or, you know, that whole self pity thing or to get angry if you're not. I mean, I'm a fighter. I'm not when yeah, it comes to fight, fight or freeze. I'm a fighter. You me know, too. Me too. and so I just get mad and want to put on the boxing gloves. And that's not going to get us where we need to go. No. So 
Um, another thing we've really done is time. And I think you alluded to it with your, with your ex is like that the time it has to be understood together. You have to be able to have a conversation. If you set time limits or parameters, they need to be respected and honored and understood to a certain degree. Like if he needs more time than, than an explanation is required and approaching it the right way is like super important. In fact, I'm, I'm like doing a master class. It's funny that we're talking about because I'm doing a master class tonight and that's the new acronym I'm presenting. Mm -hmm. um, and the master class is the approach acronym. And it's literally like attitude check, practice patience, reflect, observe, act calmly and help. Because mm. really what we're trying to do in a love relationship is help the other individual and ourselves reach our highest selves. You yes. know, the, we're not engaged with one another to just do life all the time. We're engaged with one another to reach forward in as positive a way as we possibly can. And hopefully enjoy the journey and the process. Right, right. Not torture each other or feel tortured. And, and right. I think that's another thing. Um, I love the approach acronym. That's great. I think that's another thing that I hear often in the neurodiverse couples support groups and the neurotypical non-autistic support groups that I run. And I hear this often from uh, the couples and individual partners is that there's so much toxicity. Um, you know, I used to have hope. I don't have hope anymore. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I, I don't feel respected. I don't feel valued. I don't know if I can trust my partner anymore. And those things don't change overnight. And no. they may not change for years. And you may need ongoing support and therapy and counseling or coaching to get through and get to the other side and to be able to heal and recover. It does not happen quickly. And no. I think the other thing, yeah, I think the other thing that's really important for the listeners to hear, no matter what their neurotype is, each partner is going to heal if they choose at their own speed. Yes. And so where I could, let's say, read a book and absorb it and come to my husband at the time and say, you know, this is what I learned. Let's try to practice this. Let's try to do this together. Um, he was not much of a book reader. He would read a lot of stuff online, but I could say it all to him, but he wasn't going to read the book and I could, um, talk about it with him but I think where I made the mistake is I could have given him the notes <laughs> you know I could have yes. given him the summary in writing and yes. he could have looked at it and processed it and figured out how to use it in his own way but I didn't know that so for those of you that are reading everything you can get your hands on and watching all the videos and and I did this during our separation I sent everything I could find to my ex and I again I flooded him before we knew we were a <laughs> couple I flooded him big time yes but you know give your partner a page of, of notes or ideas or things you want them to think about and not 20 pages, right? <laughs> you know, do it right. in, in bullets. So when you learn these things, Renee, it can make for a much easier 
uh, relationship, but a much easier way of communicating. So let's talk about your acronym-based system, because this is going to be phenomenal to the listeners. And you talked about Theara. And so can you tell folks what Theara is and why you created the acronym-based system and what you're doing with it? Yes, definitely. So Theara is, is, I designed it to be a one-stop support for the Neurodiverse Collective. So when I say the Neurodiverse Collective, it's the neurodivergence and all who love them and want Mm -hmm. to support them and help them in every way possible. So uh, that was the original thought process going into the creation of the online business. It's theara.com. But the, and right now you can go there and at the bottom of the screen, there's links to the dyslexia, autism, ADHD, uh, giftedness, some of the most um, common neurodiversity types. And you go into um, that screen and it goes into different aspects of the life of that neurodivergent type and how to support them. So there's a bunch of life hacks there. Um, There are resources and tools. Uh, We're working right now on a Theara shop to provide as as a go-to place for sensory support. Um, things that you can buy, jewelry, all kinds of sweatshirts, thing, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But originally the design was to uh, create Theara Academy, which I've done. Um, and we provide a cradle to the grave kind of online support for them in classes. I also do coaching and consulting that's one-on-one um, and a masterclass uh, that happens in a group. But the courses are designed. So there's Know the Way at Home, which provides um, guidance through the journey of parents first discovering neurodiversity in their little ones. Mm-hmm. And it's supporting them, like, what are their next steps? How do you find the help in your community? Um, and also, how do you navigate discipline issues, um, self-care issues? So it's just like essentially a survival guide that's supposed to move you from surviving to thriving. That's, I love it. That's what Know the Way at Home is. Um, and there's Know Your ABCs so at home, which is just the first, the first hour-long um, set of three mini lessons. Um, and that goes through Be Aware, Be Brave, Be Curious. All the things that we're talking about right now. You mm-hmm. know, building that awareness, moving forward boldly and bravely and being curious. Um And so that's kind of like a little starter class that you can take. They did the same thing um, for Know the Way at school, but it really defines and guides people through the U.S. educational K-12 journey. Mm -hmm. Whether your child's attending a private school, charter school, or um, a public school, or they're homeschooled, what your options are, what your steps, next steps are, what you need to do to initiate a comprehensive evaluation at a school um, and really get your child the right support. I talk about different eligibility categories in terms of individualized education plans and then what a 504 plan is. I try to answer all the questions that no one was answering for me. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And that's why I created Neurodiverse Love because when I found out in 2017 that we were a neurodiverse couple, I was crazy and frantically crazily and frantically looking for resources and there were a few books that were out there at the time but um I found one online support group and I you know 
jumped at the chance to be able to find other people who could understand what I was going through. So I love that your website is so comprehensive. So please share more. Yeah. And then I built Know the Way at Work, which Know the Way at Work is um, designed to help corporations and um, businesses, large and small, um, provide support to their neurodivergent um, community. Because we know that it's likely anywhere, like between 15 and 22% of the human population will qualify as neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. So how can we best support them and build inclusive work environments? And then the acronym-based system really comes in there. The acronyms are throughout all of the courses. Um, It's all an acronym-based system, but they're really the bridge yeah. to help people connect to one another, help neurotypical people connect to neurodivergence and create a common language for them. So like the CONNECT acronym is a series of questions. What's the context? Well, who's overlooked? You know, where are we struggling to navigate? Where are we most nimble? And so you just, there are foundational acronyms that are listed in every single course, but it's about literally bridge building. You know, how do we remove the barriers and build the bridges to one another, whether it's neurodiverse to neurodiverse or neurotypical to neurodiverse, the the challenges are, I think oftentimes when you have two neurodivergents together, it can be even more challenging than when you have a neurodivergent and a more neurotypical person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And people, people don't talk about that. I mean, even the way our schools are structured, the, the kids and the exceptional students go to one room for support and they're all with each other and they all have very different profiles. Right. So, and they're kind of expected to engage with one another and, and help each other. And that's not always the best way forward. Um, and so the system really does that for Know the Way at Work. And then it, finally, the course that came as a result of those first three, which was the initial thought, is creating a kind of academy where people can find support and get the help they need without necessarily paying big dollars for coaching, you know, a right, small way right. to take a course um, that they can go through at their own pace. Um, but then also we uh, have Emerge ND. Emerge ND is how to embrace, manage, better manage, and comfortably share your neurodiversity with others. And what I have found, which is like literally been so amazing, is that the people that have gone through that, um, they have woken, they have become more aware. I mean, I had someone go through it and literally at 63 emerge neurodiverse. She, she, She took the course and said, you know, I think I'm on the spectrum, you know, and it has been completely liberating journey for her. And that really goes through the foundational acronyms, which the the starting acronym with that one is life force. We live in our arena with friends and family and we educate and impact each other. Mm. Um, and we do it through our force, our fire, our outlook, our level of resistance to things, our commitment to things. And our emotional energy and how can we harness our personal force to have a more positive impact on our community, our family, on the people around us. So the idea is to give people a set of tools that they can utilize immediately um, in their daily lives. Even if it's just one acronym, like you just, I focused on joy, the joy acronym for a year 
before mm -hmm. I did any other acronyms. It was just like, okay, I've got to get my joy back. My joy is like a Louis Vuitton or a Birkin bag. I'm not letting anybody steal my Louis. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not going to let somebody steal my joy. And sometimes we, we just, I mean, we don't recognize joy as something we can possess. You know, right. we just think right. it's something that happens to us right. and it's a disciplined effort. And so is love. And, you know, the love acronym is loyal, optimistic, valiant, and vulnerable empowerment. That's I what I believe it really means to love each other. And so it just gives you that script. You were talking about those notes, you know, yep. for how valuable it would have been if you could just, instead of dropping a library on them, you just <laughs> gave them some notes, the, 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 the crib notes, right? right that's what right. So that's what the acronyms are. They're kind of crib it. notes for how to think about social engagement, encounters with one another, and and it's brain training, like how to tr train your brain. Because we know with neuroplasticity that our brains do, we can change the way we think yeah. about things and the way we operate, but we have to have constant, like we, we have to utilize an acronym or be thinking about something constantly in a disciplined way to actually restructure your normal reactions to things. Because like you said, many of us, I mean, have been experiencing trauma, micro trauma since we, we first began social engagement as neurodivergence. Yep. And so that tr builds up and builds yep. up and builds up and, and eventually shuts a lot of people down. Yes. And so how do we go reverse that? How do we reconstruct things? And thank God we have the ability to actually do that. I mean, the, the human mind is an amazing thing to me. It is. It is to me too. And the neuroplasticity, I, you know, when I have people that, you know, uh, reach out to me and say, you know, we've been in a relationship or we've been in a marriage for 25, 35 years, is there hope? And I, my response is always, there's always hope. Mm -hmm. If both of you want to work on the things that you need to change individually, and you find what you need to do to be the best partner possible. But if one person is only doing the work, then no, I, I don't think that um, holding out hope is necessarily the most healthy thing. No. So, yeah. And that's why it's one of the reasons, one of many reasons I'm divorced because I did have hope and I was, you know, for the most part willing to do whatever it took. And, you know, I understood at some point it was almost a two and a half year separation that my ex wasn't there with me. He wasn't willing to do the work with me. He may right. have done his own work. He may not have done work. I don't know. That's his journey. But I continue to do work and probably will for the rest of my life. It's just how I'm wired. I'm a social worker. You know, I'm very much a people person and I yes. don't know how to function any other way. So, so I am so excited that we had an opportunity to meet. I am so excited that you have shared your personal story. And again, you know, it's the short version, but I think it's going to be so helpful to so many folks I love the system you've created. I love what you're doing on your website to give everybody who enters your website, who clicks on your, your resources, access to all the research you've done. 
I think that's, you know, such a gift to the world, Renee. And I, I love that we're both doing this in our own ways because there's so many people out there struggling and suffering. Yes. So we're reaching the end of the podcast and I'd love if there's one last, you know, piece of information, epiphany you had, lesson you learned that you want to share with the folks who are listening. Um, if you would please do so, that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, I'm going to share this was, <laughs> I wrote an essay. I have a stepdaughter who's now 30 mm-hmm. and she's my bonus. I don't, I don't like the term stepdaughter because I think it sounds negative too, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a writer and I wrote an essay about my journey toward her because, mm-hmm. you know, there's biologically, there's no connection. Um, she's also <laughs> neurodiverse and we, but we were, unpacking things. And, um, now we're very, very close, but, um, the, the, it was titled love is in the reaching. Mm. And, um, that really is, I do believe, um, the, it's one of my go-to acronyms when it comes to my family and my, the people closest to me and, and it's resilience be, be resilient, be embracing, be adaptable, connected, and humble. Mm. And you alluded to the commitment piece um, when you were in your last comments about your relationship with your ex. And I think that's like huge because it is part of our force. What are we, are we truly committed to? Mm-hmm. And I think in a love relationship, we have to be committed to the reach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so agree. I couldn't agree more. And that's where I think so many people are literally suffering Yes, and their suffering is causing mental health issues Mm -hmm. is causing physical issues and they are being impacted in very, very, very negative and serious ways. And I've said this before on the podcast and I'll repeat it again because I think it's important for me to share this periodically. When I decided to separate from my ex, again, we still loved each other very much. I think we didn't always like each other very much. (laughs) We'd become pretty toxic and communication was really shit, to be honest with you. Um, But I knew we still loved each other. And we said that. I, I asked myself, you know, if nothing changes in the next three to five years, you know, how will I feel? How will I feel? Where will I be? And it wasn't pretty in my, in my mind's eye, it wasn't Mm -hmm. pretty for me. So I had to make the decision to separate. Um, And I think that all of us have to make the decision that is best for us. But when the decision you make brings you continuous suffering because I mean of course I suffered in the separation I didn't necessarily want a divorce but I knew it was the right thing to do and I've said that over and over again but continuing to hold out hope for somebody else to change is definitely going to create suffering for the person who's holding out hope yes 
Yeah. And I can't, I can't say that. I mean, I could scream it from, you know, the top of a mountain and, and the people who want to hear it will hear it. And the people who aren't ready won't hear it. I understand. Right. That. But, but it's, it, you're, it, it's so valuable. It's critical. To say it. yeah, yeah. It's so critical. And I wish I had a magic wand. I've said this before and I could stop the suffering for everybody that is suffering. I don't have the magic wand. It doesn't exist. Everybody has to go through their own journey and when you find peace or when you find that equilibrium for yourself, I think it changes every relationship you have with people that you love and care about. At least it did for me. Oh, it absolutely does. And that's kind of my internal check in my system was always, you know, is this going to be a barricade to my joy? Cause joy is not happiness. It is something right. happiness is that feeling joy is like, if I'm trying to journey forward, organize for optimism and yield to wellness, what are my, the obstacles in my way? If, if the relationship presents a constant obstacle to you possessing your joy, you have to remove yourself from that relationship because it's not going, you, we all, deserve that joy is truly our way forward. We need to be able to move forward in a positive and healthy direction every day. And that yielding to wellness, I mean, so many times that constant emotional <sighs> trauma that we're experiencing yeah. in a negative relationship, it, it makes us ill. Yes. And so that's an, a really important thing to be aware of. And it, and, and the more and more, I have worked to practice possessing that joy. The more and more removed people have become from my life that are major. Yes. And that's not easy, you know, yes. so making those, making those disassociating yourself from certain people, creating those boundaries yes. is very challenging, but it's absolutely necessary to, to pursuing what's, what's best for yourself. I mean, my brother said to me when we were, almost divorced. He, he, he made that, he said, Renee, you, you're 40 years old. You know, you've lived most of your, you, you've lived half of your life. You have another half left to live. You deserve a life of joy. Mm -hmm. And that was so like, I just kind of, and, and who's going to, no one's going to make that for me. We have no. to make it for ourselves. Right. Nobody is coming to save you. I mean, yes. I, hear, I hear a lot of people say that nobody is coming to save you. I don't care what your religious faith is. This is just me. And I'm Jewish. I'm not religious, but I'm definitely spiritual. Yes. I do believe that this is an internal job and it is a job. It is a yes. job that you will be working on every day for the rest of your life if you choose. Absolutely. And there are plenty of people that don't choose it. They choose to avoid. They choose to self-medicate. They choose to have um, addictions that get them through the day. And that's fine. There's no judgment here. Right. But if you want to do the work, it starts with self-awareness and looking inside and realizing there are things that each one of us can work on every day. And I will be a work in progress till I leave this earth. <laughs> Me too. For sure. And I love it. I love it. Someday. Well, it's know, incredibly rewarding, right? Yes. I mean, it's the most yes. rewarding work you could ever do. And, and, and it's something where the more you do it, the more the benefits just grow and grow exponentially. So it, it, why yes. would you stop? <laughs> 
Well, that, that's the thing. I think people stop or don't want to start because that means that they are going to have to make some changes. Yes. They are going to have to look at some of the things that they've done that weren't so healthy or weren't so um, compassionate to themselves or others. And that can hurt. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you, you know, I've talked about it on the podcast. I went on an antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication for four and a half years because if I hadn't, I don't know that I would be standing most days. It helped yes. to create some equilibrium in my brain. But Renee, clearly we could talk forever and I may invite you back on the podcast, but how do people reach you? What is the best way for them to reach you? The best way for them to reach me would be to go to Thiara at Thiara.com. Just email me there. So that's T-H-E-A-R-A at T-H-E-A-R-A.com. And you will be able to um, be a, says to me, I'm check, I'm on my um, email every single day. That's our company website is Thiara, T-H-E-A-R-A.com. Just simple. You go there and you have full access to um, all the courses. You can sign up for the masterclass. It's inexpensive. We meet every Wednesday. We do a wellness Wednesday, the first of the month. So I'm having um, another one tonight. We're in the year of, of plant and nourish. And so mm -hmm. that's what we're, and, and really the masterclass is designed for neurodivergence and neuro, parents of neurodivergent children so that you just have some of the skills that you need and some concrete tools to navigate your everyday a little better. I love it. Renee, thank you so much for sharing your journey and for sharing your knowledge and for doing the research so that everybody does not have to go so in depth <laughs> to gather yeah. all the information that you have and that you've put on your website. I am really thankful that you reached out. I'm so thankful that we had an opportunity to talk. And I know this episode is going to be very, very, very helpful to a lot of folks. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending an hour and a half with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been an honor to be on your podcast and to have this opportunity to share. I, I really, truly, and I know you have the exact same heart, want to share everything you can to help others through what can be a really challenging journey. And, and so they don't, the struggle is not as intense and I'm incredibly grateful to be here. And I have thoroughly enjoyed every moment of our conversation today. Me too. It's been pure joy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>